Hi, everyone. Welcome back for another season of Creeks to Peaks, the Understory podcast. Before we jump into our first episode, we wanted to acknowledge the passing of our first guest for this season, World War II Medal of Honor recipient and West Virginian, Herschel Woody Williams. We were truly saddened by the news and our condolences go out to everyone in his family. He was truly a national treasure. I was honored to sit down with Woody exactly a year ago at his favorite diner in Milton, West Virginia, and was in awe as he recounted the last 97 years of his life to me. We had a back room of the diner all to ourselves, and with the sounds of the dishes clanging in the kitchen, for those two or so hours, time melted away. We hope that you enjoy the first two episodes of the season featuring Woody as much as I enjoyed having a conversation with him. Hi, welcome to Creeks to Peaks the Understory, the podcast that highlights West Virginians, both near and far, who are doing amazing work in their respective fields, many of whom you may not even know about. Our goal is to bring your attention to these individuals, their stories, and how they connect to the state. In forestry terms, the understory means everything underneath the canopy, and those are exactly the people we're trying to highlight. Maybe not household names, but stars in their own right. So join us as we talk to our guests about who they are and where they come from. This podcast is produced by Flag Spruce Initiative, a West Virginia-based nonprofit whose mission is to invest in and advocate for the education, environment, and economy of West Virginia, or what we refer to as our three E's. To donate and find out more about Creeks to Peaks the Understory and Flag Spruce Initiative, visit www.flagspruce.org or follow us on Instagram. Welcome to our second season of Creeks to Peaks the Understory the podcast that talks to and highlights amazing West Virginians both near and far. We're extremely humbled by the feedback we received after season one, and we're excited to continue bringing you fantastic stories that are all deeply rooted in the Mountain State. Our guest on this episode is Herschel Woody Williams. Williams was born in 1923 in Quiet Dell, West Virginia, and at 98 years old, he is currently the last living Congressional Medal of Honor recipient from World War II. Williams served in the Marine Corps' 32nd Replacement Battalion, as well as Charlie Company 1st Battalion, 21st Marine Regiment, 3rd Marine Division, where he saw combat in Guadalcanal and later in the Battle of Iwo Jima. After an honorable discharge following his heroic events and his White House Awards ceremony, Williams found himself returning to service of his country, where he continued to serve in different components of the Marine Corps until his retirement in 1969 at the final rank of Chief Warrant Officer 4. Williams would later serve as the chaplain of the Congressional Medal of Honor Society for 35 years and continues to be a fixture throughout the military community, the state, and in the town of Milton, West Virginia, where I was fortunate enough to sit down with him at his favorite diner. Thanks again for joining us as we jump into Season 2, and as always, take a listen. Let's get this thing started. Woody, thank you so much for finding the time to sit down with me. For listeners out there, we are currently in Milton, West Virginia at Shonet's Country Diner. Uh, We're in the back room and I'm having the opportunity to sit down with Herschel Woody Williams to get a little bit of his story about growing up in West Virginia, his time in the military, and so on and so forth. So first and foremost, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me. My pleasure. So let's go ahead and get started talking about your childhood. You grew up in Quiet Dell, West Virginia. Where is that? Okay. There are two Quiet Dells in West Virginia. 
one in Harrison County near Clarksburg. Yeah. The other was in Marion County near Fairmont. Oh, they're not far away from each other then. That's true. And I grew up in the one seven and a half miles east of Fairmont, which is Quietdale, my Quietdale. Yeah. And it was a very small community, uh, mostly uh, farming, and we had a few people in the community that were coal miners. Uh, we had no coal mines in Quietdale, but they traveled to other locations to work in the coal mines. How far did they have to travel to do well, that? Well, six, seven miles. Okay. Back in the day, though, that, that takes a little bit of time, I would yeah, imagine. Yeah, right. And cars were very scarce, of course. Yeah. And their hours usually were uh, 10 hours a day working rather than just eight. Sure. Because uh, they could make more, naturally, if they worked 10. And so, But I grew up on a farm. My dad, when, he, when I was very, very young, worked for uh, what was known as Work Projects Administration, which was an organization designated by the government to build mostly mostly roads because we had no roads and uh, we had to grade roads and it was done primarily with horses teams then they would put stone down and the stone was actually broken up by people with sledgehammers oh wow because we had no no grinders of any kind to break the stone up no machinery of that sort okay so they built a base and uh, then they would put dirt on it, uh, on the road, and then they would cover it with tar, (laughs) T-A-R, and let it harden, and that became became the road. Very narrow. Two cars could not pass on it. One or or the other of them usually would have to get two wheels off of the pavement or off the road so the two cars could pass at the same time. And my dad worked. uh, We had a farm, of course, and we had horses. But tractors were not available at that time. Everything was done by teams. And uh, my dad started, when I was about five years old, a dairy farm. And with the dairy farm, we we had about 40 acres of ground. And, of course, we raised every kind of a crop you could think of. Yeah. Corn, wheat, soybeans, uh, buckwheat. All that sort of thing. And, of course, gardening. Because you had to make what you needed because there was no place to buy it. Right. And you didn't have any money anyway. Well, did you guys did you guys sell the uh, products that you raised? We did. Okay. Uh, my father uh, started or arranged to start a uh, delivery service to Fairmont. And which was, I said, seven and a half miles away. Sure. We started out with a Model T Ford. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, back in those days, you had no starters, so you had to crank it to get it to go. (laughs) And uh, we started out with uh, uh, a number of cows, and I don't remember the number at that in the beginning because I was only six or seven years old. But eventually, we continued to gather uh, milk cows. And most of them were were Jersey cows because the thinking was at that time the Jersey cows had a richer cream milk than other cows. So my dad sort of concentrated on Jersey cows for that reason. But we would milk uh, naturally twice a day. 
Okay. And we would bottle the milk in glass bottles, pints and quarts. And uh, we had to have an ice box because there was no refrigeration. And so we would put, uh, you could go to town and buy ice at what was known as an ice house. Now, they got their ice for the ice house every winter when the Monongahela River would freeze over and the ice would get rather thick, like 12 inches thick. Well, they would take huge saws and saw blocks of ice out of that, take it to the ice house and store it in the ice house. And uh, it was made of logs. Yeah. So they put sawdust between the logs to insulate, so, yeah. you know, so hold the cold in. Sure. And uh, when we would deliver milk and groceries and produce of all kinds, eggs, chickens, tomatoes, whatever people wanted in town, why uh, we'd stop there every day on the way back home, pick up a 100-pound block of ice, and bring it home, put it in the icebox. Wow. That's how we cooled our milk. That's amazing. It was. It was, it was a tough life. I'm sure. Hard work. Long hours. Uh, my first job as about a six-year-old, there were actually 11 born to my family. But many of them died uh, during the flu epidemic. Okay. In 1917, 18. Yeah. Or 19. And uh, others just didn't make it after they were born. And so only five of the 11 actually survived to adulthood. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, four brothers and one sister. Yeah. And you were the youngest? I was the youngest. Okay. Yeah. So my first job as a six, about a six-year-old was to get the cows in during the summer months. The winter months, we kept them in the barn because of the cold. Sure. It was extremely cold back in those days. Lots of snow. Winter lasted from about November until April. Yeah. Always cold. Lots, lots of deep snows. So we kept the cows in during the winter months. And then the summer months, we turned them out to pasture. So uh, my job during the summer months was to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, go get the cows, get them in the barn, get ready to milk by 5 o'clock. As a six-year-old? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. But you shrugged like it. No, no big deal. That's, <laughs> that just that's, happened to all of them. That is you know, Every boy that came along, amazing. that was his job. Yeah, of course. Sure. Wow. Because yeah. you, were, you were born in 1923? Yes. Okay. So you've, off, you've obviously seen so much in your lifespan. You're, how old are you now? I'll be 98 in a couple of months. Okay. Wow. And so World War I just ended, you know, not long before you were born. True. So you, you were alive in the 20s there. You've seen, you've seen the Great Depression. How, how did that affect your family and the business and your dairy business during the Great Depression? Yeah. Well, we, we didn't have any money. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when things crashed in 1929, mm-hmm. but my dad had just actually got the farm going, the dairy farm going well yeah. at that time. But there was no place you could go to buy stuff. We had a little general store in Quietdale, 
but they sold mostly canned goods and, and stuff like that. No refrigeration, so you couldn't buy refrigerated stuff at all. So you had to raise about everything that you ate. So we'd always have a big garden. And we had a, uh, my dad had planted trees around the house of uh, apple trees, cherry trees, uh, peach trees. And we would gather that during the uh, fall of the year mm-hmm. and store it in the basement. We had a house that was actually two stories high with a full basement. And in the basement, my dad and the older boys had built benches or or shelves in the basement where we could store uh, apples uh, and uh, potatoes and other kinds of uh, vegetables for a period of time. And we would use those during the winter months Yeah, after we dug them up and picked them and brought them in. My mother canned about everything, you know, green beans and corn and whatever, uh, because you had to do that since you couldn't grow stuff during the winter months. And we always had beef because we would have cows or young beef, young, young cattle that we had to butcher. And we always had hogs. So we always killed hogs every year. And, and we had a building that uh, that we would put the hams in and all the stuff, salt it down yeah. so it would be preserved. And it was, it was a, you know, 12-hour day was just normal every day. And in 1929, you were six years old, so you were working hard. That's did, right. Did you go to school? I did. I started to school when I was six. Uh and, of course, we only had a one-room schoolhouse, 10, 12, 15 of us in this one room. And the teacher, uh, I had her all, all, my edu- all of my elementary years. Miss Naomi Morgan was the teacher for everybody. She taught all the grades. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, it was on my goal. It would be two kids in, in a grade. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So... Uh, well, first we were sitting just in one room, and we'd be you know, all of us would have our individual chairs. But eventually, the, we got enough kids in the community that they had to build another school. So when they built the second school, it was a two-room school, and it would hold uh, 25, 30 kids. And uh, you'd go to one room or one room section for uh, four years, and then you'd go to the next room, you get promoted, yeah. go to the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth room in the next room. And of course, Miss Morgan, when I graduated fourth year, going up to the fifth grade, uh, she also got promoted and she became the fifth grade teacher. <laughs> so I had her all the way through school. But uh, <laughs> funny she, how that works. <laughs> she was a terrific lady. I mean, you know, she's the one that really taught me to love my country, to respect my flag, to believe in America, and yeah. believe that that being an American was such a high, high privilege. Sure, she taught me all of that. That's uh, good. Yeah. So, when you graduated high school, 
You is that when you joined the Civilian Conservation Corps? No, I didn't graduate high school. Okay, I, I went first year. Okay, but transportation seven and a half miles from high school. Yeah, was a problem. Sure. Now I could ride the milk truck. That's what we called it. We I could ride the milk truck to town on uh, in the morning because every morning we had to go seven days a week. Yeah. You know, you had to you deliver had to, it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know. So I could ride the truck to high school, but how do I get home? Because the truck goes back home as soon as they deliver all the stuff to the mm-hmm. houses in, in the community that we had as our milk route, so to speak. So I would have to walk sometimes. And uh, back in those days, if you were on the highway and a car came by, it was just as normal as could be that the people would stop and say, get in. <laughs> you know, it was just part of life, part of the culture. So uh, I very seldom had to walk all the way home because somewhere between or during that seven and a half miles, somebody had come along with a car that you could get in the back of a pickup or a dump truck or anything else, and they'd drop you off at home. Well, that's so, cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. If you're visiting the newest national park in the United States, make sure to stop by Lost Appalachia Trading Company. Located in downtown Fayetteville, West Virginia, this exciting new business desires to share quality goods that capture a bit of the spirit, natural beauty, and history of the mountains that we call home. Whether it's apparel like shirts and hats or artwork for your home, Lost Appalachia Trading Company does its best to source those items for creators throughout the Appalachian region. So once you're done checking out everything the New River Gorge National Park has to offer, save some exploring for this company too. You can find them on the web at lostappalachia.com or visit them on Instagram at Lost Appalachia. Now let's get back to the podcast. How old were you when you left West Virginia? At 16. 16, and that was for the Civilian Conservation Corps? Right. And that was a program instituted by Franklin Roosevelt with the New Deal. True. Right after the Great Depression. Okay. What made you want to join that? Well, my brother Gerald, his name was William Gerald Williams. When he was 16, he was not crazy about farming. Now, he had to do it like everybody, like all the rest of us, you know. Yeah. But he would have preferred doing anything else, I think, because he, he just didn't like particularly like farming. So uh, when he got to be 16, he heard somewhere along the way about this Civilian Conservation Corps, and they were paying $21 a month. Okay. And, of course, they furnished everything else. They furnished your clothing and your medical and your food and all of that. So he decided that's what he was going to do, and he did at 16. You could do that without parent consent at that time. Gotcha. You, you could go to the CCCs. Yeah. It wasn't war, so you could go as a 16-year-old, uh, like reporting to a job or whatever. Yeah. So he went in, and uh, then he would get home. He did hitchhike. It was about 60 miles from where he was in the CCC camp to home. Oh, okay. And he'd hitchhike every once, every once in a while on Friday evening back home and spend Saturday and then hitchhike back on Sunday. Now, we had no car. Yeah. It was just one of those things. (laughs) And and usually you didn't have to hitchhike, but 
Some of us did, you know, you'd throw up your thumb and <laughs> they'd pick you up. That All that did was tell them you want to go someplace. <laughs> you know. But uh, Pretty safe back then to do that, I would imagine. It was. It had no qualms at all. Right. But uh, I was a year, a little over a year younger than he. So when uh, he would come home occasionally and he'd have some dollar bills, I'd never seen a dollar bill. Really? I didn't know what it was. Huh. Yeah. Okay. So he'd have some dollar bills. So when I got to be 16, I decided, well, I'm going to do the same thing. Now, my father died when I was 11 of a heart condition. So my mother was running the farm with an older brother. Mm-hmm. And uh, I decided, well, I'm going to go in the CCCs also. To get some of that $21 a month. Yeah, which at that time was a lot of money. It was. And uh, I thought I'd I'd never heard of the CCCs other than his. Right. And uh, he uh, apparently never told me much about any any other camps. But anyway, I I told my mother I'm going to CCCs, and she was not very happy about that. But I went anyway thinking I would go to the very same camp that he was. 60 uh, miles away. <laughs> yeah. But when uh, I f- went in, uh, they sent me to a different city. They sent me to Morgantown instead of Pickens, West Virginia, where he was located. Okay. And they, they had established a camp in Morgantown. And uh, – we had about 165 young boys in that camp at Morgantown. It was a big camp. And we had people from New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio, and Virginia, all in this same camp. So we were in Morgantown camp for several months. And then all of a sudden, they decided they needed this group of people, us, in Montana. That's a so, far cry from yeah. Quiet Dell, West Virginia. So they put us all aboard train and shipped us all to a little town of Whitehall, Montana, way out in the prairie. There wasn't a thing around it for miles around. Is that eastern Montana or is that more western Montana? More western. So close to big mountains? and Yeah. Wow. Yeah, right close to Rockies. Okay. Yeah. When we got out there, that's when we learned what we were going to do. The camp, the CCC camps, were run by Army personnel. We had a commanding officer, usually a second lieutenant. Yeah. Uh, we had a first sergeant, mess sergeant, and we had some Army clerks in the office that did the record keeping and all of that. Sure. Uh, we did mess duty and clean up around the camp and all that. We were the work details. Yeah. yeah. So you were basically in the military at that point, it sounds like. In a, That's right. In a but, sense. It was, but it was very little military. Yeah. You know? they, they didn't teach us to march right, or any right. of that stuff. Just know? the structure of it. Yeah, just the structure. What, what type of work were you guys doing out there? Well, when we got to Montana, they uh, were establishing crews to work in the Rocky Mountains to cut pine posts. And the, we were cutting the pine posts to build what was known in those days, and I guess some of it is still standing, called Jack Fence. Huh. J-A-C-K Fence. Okay. Now, why that name, I have no idea. 
I mean, I don't know where it came from. But we would cut the posts in the Rockies, pine posts, and then we would have to peel them, peel bark off of them. And they had to be eight feet long, and they had to be notched at the top, each post, so that the post would fit in the notches. Then they would take them to a creosote plant where we had, where the individuals had made uh, boiling creosote tanks out of 55-gallon drums. They cut them in half, which gave it a, it would hold then creosote. Yeah. And they welded those together at each end and put them in a long line and uh, on metal stands. And the bark that we peeled off of the trees was used to build a fire under the creosote so it would boil and yeah. be exceedingly hot. So then the pine posts, once we peeled them, would be put in that creosote and left to boil for a period because it, it extended the life of the pine. Pine's very soft. Stuff. Yeah. So this creosote kind of extended the life of that post. Yeah, okay. And now they still stand to this day, so That's it must right. have done pretty good. Yeah. And uh, so then once once they were creosoted, then we'd put them on a truck and take them out into the, uh, to the prairie where the fence was being built to keep cattle people and sheep people apart because the cattle people and the sheep people had leased government property to run their herds on. Okay. And the cattle people didn't want the sheep people on their property and vice versa. There were some wars over that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So uh, we built miles and miles and miles wow. of jack fence. Had you ever been out of the state before Montana? No. Well, I've been to uh, Pittsburgh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's the farthest way I've ever been. Right. What What was that experience like once you got to the Rockies in Montana? Well, I never. I thought I'd never get back home. Again. There's <laughs> just no way in the world I'll ever find West Virginia again. <laughs> far, far trip from <laughs> West Virginia. Yeah, it's a long, long way. Yeah. How How did you think the mountains compared to back home? Well, it was cold. Yeah, it really was, and and of course in the Rockies. You had snow almost year round. Yeah, each uh, each occupation that they were teaching us, whether it be construction or building or building fence or whatever, we had a forester, a guy that was trained in forestry, that supervised. He was a civilian, mm-hmm. but he supervised these crews to help them how to teach them how to cut posts and peel posts. and None of us knew any of that. Yeah, I, I wouldn't know that no. type of stuff. So he was the expert. But once we got back to camp, then he had no authority. Okay. Because only when we were on the job was he our supervisor. Yeah. So when we got back to camp, we're back under the control of the commanding officer right. of that base. Yeah. Huh. Very interesting. It was. So... This was around, this was the early 1940s that you were? This, yeah, or, well, it was 39. 39? So. Okay. Yeah. And then not long after, uh, I guess maybe you were in Montana, I'll let you clear this up. You were still working with the Civilian Conservation Corps and Pearl Harbor was attacked. That's right. Is that what spurred you to want to go into the military? Well, 
none of us, as far as I know, knew anything about what was taking place in the world. Yeah. Because we had no radios that give us broadcasts or information, no newspapers to teach us anything. So when the war happened, they called us out the day after Pearl Harbor, and we were in some kind of a formation. It was anything but military, but it was they just gathered us together. And uh, that's when the uh, Army person personnel told us that we were going to war. Mm. We, we knew nothing about that. Right. None of, I can't speak for others, but I'd never heard of Pearl Harbor. I didn't even know we had a place. Uh, I never heard of the South Pacific either. So, <laughs> you know. But uh, at that time, they did say if you were over 18 years of age and you wanted to go into the Army, they could enlist you right there wow. and ship you off to an army base. Okay. But if you're under 18, then you had to have a parent consent. You couldn't go without folks approving it. And, of course, my dad being deceased, I knew my mother was not going to do that. Yeah. I just knew it. So uh, I said, well, but then the other option was they're going to discharge everybody and send them home. Okay. Because CCCs are being discontinued. Would you have been fine with that if you would have been discharged and sent home? Well, that's what happened. Oh, that's what happened. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that was my only other option. Okay. Was take the discharge and come home. And I was still only 17 years of age. Sure. I wanted to actually go into the Marine Corps when I got home. Now, I've been asked many times, why did I select the Marine Corps? Yeah. I knew nothing about military. We very seldom ever saw anybody in our community that were military people. Uh, we did have a couple individuals. Well, I'll back up a moment. I had two brothers uh, that had been drafted in early 1942. And they were stationed, one of them was stationed in uh, Indiana and the other one was stationed in Maryland. So on occasion, they would hitchhike home on Friday evening and then back on Sunday. But that was very seldom. I only saw them two or three times at all. But I did see them in, they had to wear their army uniform. Mm -hmm. Because they took all the civilian clothes away from you. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't want you to wear civilian clothes. So we had two individuals in the community during the Depression years, in the more 35, 36, 1935, 36, long in there someplace, that enlisted into the Marine Corps. And they were not related. There were just two individuals who wanted to be Marines, and they were. And, and in those days, you didn't get home except one time a year. They gave you a 30-day furlough okay. one time a year. Okay. And uh, the Marine Corps, as well as the Army, required you to wear your uniform while you were home. Huh. That, that's all you had. Yeah. Yeah. Probably so, a decent recruiting technique, too. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, uh, of course, some of them didn't, have, you know, they, they cheated, didn't wear the uniform every day. But but most of them, and particularly Marines, were they were very proud of the fact that they were a Marine, proud of the dress blues that they were wearing. So most of them wore them every day. Yeah. So... 
I don't know whether, I guess that was the thing that attracted me to the Marine Corps because I knew nothing about the Army or the Marine Corps. So when I got home, I decided that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to look like that guy back there that I'd seen in that dressable <laughs> uniform. So I went to town to a building where all of the military services recruiters were gathered. Ever, the Army was there. The Navy, Coast Guard, all of them. Was it in Quietdale? No, that was in Fairmont. It was in Fairmont, okay. Yeah, it was yeah, it's seven and a half miles away. Yeah. But it was a good-sized building, and that's where people were going to volunteer to go into the war. And wasn't drafted. Right. These were all volunteers. The draft board was someplace else. Yeah. So uh, I went in that building, and, and of course— it was very chaotic, lots of people running in all kinds of directions. And I looked up the Marine, told him I want to join the Marine Corps. And he handed me a slip of paper or a piece of paper and told me to fill it out. And basically, all it wanted to know was your next of kin, when you were born, where you were born, what your home address is, uh, who's to get your $10,000 life insurance in case you get killed, and that kind of basic information. So I filled it out and took it back to the Marine and uh, the recruiter. And when he looked at it, and of course, there were people going to him constantly. So uh, he said, he took the paper, but he said, I can't take you. Why not? You're too short. Too short? Yeah. Really? You don't seem that short. <laughs> well, the Marine Corps had a height requirement at that time of 5'8". Okay. So if you weren't 5'8", you couldn't get in the Marine Corps. Okay. That's kind of surprising given the events that were happening at that time. That's right. But we're talking about 1942. Right. And, of course, the war started December 41. But we were already beginning to get casualties from both the Pacific and Europe. Yeah. And I didn't know that, of course. I had no information about that. But... When he turned me down to say, I, and I wasn't the only one. We had a lot of Italian individuals in our community, people that had come there to work in the coal, the coal mines, mines. Mm-hmm. and a lot of them were short people. But it's easier for a short person to work in a coal four or five foot coal mine yeah. than it is a six or a seven or eight foot tall guy, right. you know? So, uh um, he turned down a lot of people because they just didn't meet that height requirement. Interesting. Okay. And, but in early 43, the Marine Corps, as well as the military, realized they were going to have to have more individuals. So they lowered the height requirement then to, well, I don't know, five foot or four foot two or something like okay. that. Okay. That's a big change. Yeah. So that recruiter... I'm, I'm positive he kept all the papers that he had to turn down because I really think he knew something was going to happen sometime at some point that he would have to take additional people. Right. So uh, he came to the farm, really, and looked me up. Really? Yeah. Okay. And asked me if I still wanted to go in the Marine Corps, and I said yes. So I went back in, filled out another piece of paper, and I was accepted. What were your mom's thoughts during all that? Well, she did. She was not happy, of course. Okay. She already had two boys in there that had already been sent to Europe. Right. Yeah. 
And you were her youngest, too. I was the youngest, yeah. yeah. And she was having difficulty trying to run the farm because to find people to work was very difficult because people were just volunteering going into the military. Sure. You know, most of the people that were available were what we called back in those days 4F, meant you were not qualified hmm. because of a physical condition or age or something that you couldn't serve in the military. So they called them 4F. Okay. But to find those people to work on the farm was very difficult. Yeah. Eventually, she had to sell it and quit Um, farming. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. When they finally got you to enlist, you were shipped to California for training? Yes. Paris Island at that time, and it was, since the East Coast was more heavily populated Mm -hmm. than the West Coast back then, they were getting so many people wanting to get into Marine Corps that they couldn't find enough drill instructors and housing and that type thing for everybody. So the Marine Corps started uh, forming what they called troop trains. And they formed them in the south, someplace, Georgia, Florida, down in that area. And they would come up through each state, and they would pick up so many people in each state as it came along. Really? To, to get on this troop train. Oh, wow. And so six of us from West Virginia at that particular moment or time uh, were designated to be Marines, and they put us on a bus at Clarksburg and sent us to Charleston where we would catch the train going to California. Huh. What was the train? Did it have seats, or was it just they empty were, freight cars? Or? They were these wooden slatted seats. Okay. You know, no cushions. Yeah. And, you know, sitting on a slatted seat is not the most comfortable thing in the world. No. But that was the seating, and they had one uh, chow car on this train. It was long. I mean, I have no idea how many cars were there. But they fed around the clock. You know, you might be evening breakfast at uh, Four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> you, know, you never knew. It's a big line, yeah. Because they would take them by cars, you know, so many people from each car and go through the child line around the clock. Wow. You know? It took us five days from West Virginia to California because uh, uh, freight trains at that time hauling war material mm-hmm. had priority sure. over the track. So if we're going someplace, and they get word that there's a freight train going the other direction, we'd have to get off on a sidetrack and sit there and wait and wait and wait until the freight train goes by, then get back on and go again. Were these cars, were they just packed full of of guys? They were. They were. What time of year was this? That was was 1943. Was it summer or winter? or April. April, okay. Yeah. Any any heating or uh, anything on those? Or were you just bundled up in whatever you had? Well, uh, I, I don't remember being cold or hot. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's good. That's good. Because you would have had to pass over the Rockies and everything, too. Yeah, so. right. Oof, yeah. April's still still cold out there. Yeah. Well, that's that's interesting. And then you got to you got to San Diego. Yeah. That's where you did most of your training. Yeah, I got I got we got to San Diego in May. I said April. It was in May, okay. May 27, in fact. And uh, 
got off the train and went to San Diego boot camp. Okay. Yeah. How long of a boot camp was it? 13 weeks. Okay. 13 That's weeks. pretty normal yeah. compared to what it is still today. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What, what was your job that you were given? Well, after we got through boot camp, we went through a series of training of trying to work with with tanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you had to be, if you were an infantry outfit assigned with the support of tanks, mm-hmm. then somebody in that unit had to know how to control or direct the tank driver because his vision is so limited. Yeah. He just had a little window to look at up. And so we trained uh, for a month or so doing that. So each one of us would have some little bit of knowledge of working the phone on the back of the tank to tell him what to do and where to go. Then we were sent to Camp Pendleton for complete infantry training. And that lasted until September of 43. Okay. And then we put aboard ship and sent to South Pacific. And you were also trained in demolitions and flamethrowers? Well, after we got overseas, got to Guadalcanal, uh, we were sent to Guadalcanal to be outfitted with the combat infantry material, packs and canteens and all that sort of thing, to go to Bougainville, where the Marines were fighting at that particular time, Mm -hmm. 3rd Marine Division was taking Bougainville, and we were designated to fill the slots of those that had been wounded and killed to uh, bring them up to strength. Yeah. And uh, we were called a replacement unit. Okay. But before they could get us shipped out from Guadalcanal to Bougainville, on another ship, uh, the Marines in Bougainville secured the island enough that uh, the Army came in, occupied it, and sent the Marines to Guadalcanal, and that's where I joined them Okay, in uh, December of 43. And uh, that's when we got the flamethrower that we'd never seen before. Yeah. We had no idea it existed. And when we saw it, we didn't know what it was or how to use it or anything. And there were no instructions as to how it was to be applied in combat. Really? Yeah. No instructions? No. No. Wow. And nobody, none in our outfit had ever been around one or ever seen one. Did they teach you how to use it or anything? No, we had to learn ourselves. You had to learn yourselves. We taught ourselves. That that, that blows my mind. That that is... uh, That's a new one. Wow. The Woody Williams Foundation is a charitable 501c3 nonprofit organization that pursues specific endeavors and goals through the vision of Medal of Honor recipient Herschel Woody Williams. The foundation encourages the establishment of permanent Gold Star Family Memorial Monuments in communities throughout the United States, provides living legacy scholarships to eligible Gold Star children, and advocates for educational benefits for all Gold Star family members. To learn more about the Woody Williams Foundation and how you can be a part of it, visit woodywilliams.org. Now let's get back to the podcast. When you landed in the Pacific, what was going through your head at that time? Were you scared? Were you 
regretting the decision you made to enlist? Or No, I never did regret the decision I made. I knew nothing about combat, so I wasn't scared. Yeah, sure. I, I didn't know what, what we were getting into. And I think one thing that we, you know, we don't think about these days is obviously there was a media back then, but not everything was televised 24-7, so you don't have these images going through your head of what you're about to go into. So that's that's an interesting facet of serving at that time, too. And everything was restricted in the way of uh, information. I can't say that it was secret, sure. but it was restricted. When we left the Continental Limits in the United States, they told us before we left that when we get out of the Continental Limits, 12 miles or whatever it is, Every letter we write must be left unsealed so that a censoring officer can read our mail and make sure we are not giving the enemy any information that would be useful to them. Interesting. So uh, whatever love letter you wrote to your girlfriend or your wife or whomever, you had to leave it unsealed and go to a censoring officer and if you said something about training or where you were or what you were going to do, he would either black it out with ink or he would take a razor blade and cut it out huh. of the letter. Uh, I've got a letter fastened to my refrigerator. I'd gone through some material well, a couple months ago, I guess it was, and I found an old V-mail. Uh, V-mail was a one sheet of paper that you could write out on. It would seal itself. In other words, it was all complete. Made it, it would form into a letter. Okay. And you could mail that. Of course, all of our mail was free from overseas. Didn't have to have any stamps. Right. And uh, I was writing to my fiance, my girlfriend, mm-hmm. and uh, I wrote this V-mail. And uh, there's five places at the beginning of every of a sentence that has a hole cut in it. Now, I don't know what I said, and from reading it, I can't determine what I said, but he cut those first few words of that sentence out, and then at the bottom of the letter, he had written the words, now this is to my girlfriend here in Fairmont, West Virginia, Yeah, uh, tell Mr. Williams to quit trying to use code in his letters. <laughs> I don't know what kind of a code I was trying to do, but <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Maybe younger Woody would remember. Like, <laughs> had a secret plan to let her know <laughs> yeah, something. something. <laughs> well, I guess I was trying to say where we were or what we were doing yeah. or something, you know. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it's got holes in it. That's so, funny. That's a keepsake. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Backing up a little bit, just a little bit. So you got to Guadalcanal. That was the Battle of Guam that you were involved in? Well, eventually. Eventually, uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, when we were in Guadalcanal, we got the flamethrowers in about January of 44. Uh, okay. And they came in in great big wooden crates, and we didn't know what they were, nothing. It did have a manual in it to tell us all the parts, how to take it apart and put it back together, and how much fuel the tank held. And and within each uh, box was a 
package in cellophane package that read phosphorus powder. It was naturally sealed, but it also said to mix it with gasoline, and uh, that would turn it into a gel, and it was sticky. It became very sticky, like glue almost, and uh, once it got on your skin, since it had phosphorus in it, it burned. So it told us how much air pressure to put in the tank to force the fuel out. Well, at least it gave you some instructions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, this phosphorus, if it got on the person, it would continue to burn. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it, if, he, if he covered a body with that stuff, it would be horrible. Oh, man. Uh, but our gunnery sergeant, who was in charge of our unit, and we only had seven individuals in this special weapons unit, they called it, plus the gunnery sergeant. And the gunnery sergeant was in charge of the whole, whole group, but he supervised our group. And uh, the six of us, seven of us, including me, uh, we were training to be flamethrower operators and demolition people. None of us had ever been demolition people before. We hadn't been flamethrower people before. But we learned how to use explosives, primarily TNT, mm-hmm. and uh, how to make a, uh, a satchel charge or a package of TNT, put a fuse in it, put a fuse lighter on it, and throw it and blow things, whatever. Yeah. And uh, to use this gel as a fluid in the flamethrower. But the gun sergeant didn't like that stuff because it was like shooting a water hose. You only had one stream. Yeah. And uh, you only had 72 seconds of fuel. So by the time you couldn't aim this thing because you're shooting from the waist, you know, by the time you got on target, you're out of stuff. He didn't like that at all, so he began experimenting with other kinds of liquid fuel, liquid stuff. Uh, I don't remember the sequence now, but we tried kerosene, and that didn't work. Didn't have any heat to it. Okay. And we tried diesel, I mean, uh, motor oil, and it was too thick. When you mix it with gasoline, it wouldn't go anywhere because it had too much body weight. And then finally we ended up with uh, diesel fuel, and gasoline. A mixture. A mixture. And uh, the diesel fuel would give it a body, and the gasoline would give it the heat. Yeah. I like how you guys are just experimenting with this as you go along. Yeah. You're just trying to figure it out as yeah. as need be. Wow. that's That still blows my mind. <laughs> <laughs> but we trained, um, kept training on that. Then we shipped out in June of '44. And really, when we got aboard ship, uh, we were told that we were actually going to Saipan to be a backup for the 2nd Marine Division that was hitting Saipan. We were there in the event they would need more Marines. Okay. We sat out in the ocean, couldn't see anything, couldn't hear anything, didn't know what was going on. But eventually, after we were there for several days, uh, they said, didn't need us. 
apparently people ashore didn't said we don't need any more help. They shipped us back to uh, an island called Marshall Islands, where we had had large supply units, and we refurbished the ship there because we'd eaten up all the chow and <laughs> everything else. So uh, we refurbished the ship at uh, Marshall Islands, got back aboard ship, and shipped out to sea again. When we got out to sea that time, they told us we're going to take Guam back. That's when we learned that we were going to hit Guam, and that was in July. July. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 44? Yeah. Now, on the ships, were you guys still aware of the potential danger of Japanese fighter planes overhead? Is that a concern that you had to be aware of? No. Okay. No. Because they were, they were farther uh, toward Japan than they were in that part of the, gotcha. of the ocean at that's that good. time. Okay. When you got to Guam, that's when you saw your first combat action? Yes. What was that like the first time you were involved in combat? When we got off the boats, we didn't have Higgins boats yet. Right. We were still dealing with those pointy nose uh, boats. I forget what they called them, but uh, you had to go over the side of the things. When we got off at Guam, the beach area had been pretty well cleared out because they'd bombed that thing and uh, airplanes were flying all over. We had complete control of the air. So... We didn't have a whole lot of trouble landing at Guam because the the Japanese were farther inland. We had a huge hill in front of us when we got off the the boats, and uh, the Japanese were on top of the hill, so they had all the advantage. They could just see us wherever we were down below, and uh, they were, of course, shooting artillery and mortars and throwing hand grenades and whatever. So we attempted, it took us almost five days to get from the shore to the top of that hill because we had to overcome their resistance. And finally, with artillery and airplanes, they drove them back from the top of the hill to where we could actually get up and form a line of defense on top of the hill ourselves. And we had just been there a day or maybe two days. I think it was on the second morning of the second day. They were 1,000 yards, maybe 1,500 yards back in the jungle from where we were. It was kind of cleared land in front of us. A lot of shrubbery or bushes and that sort of thing, but no no thick jungle. Yeah. And uh, finally they came charging out of the jungle, and we had two band's eyes, they call it, back at that time. Early in the morning, just about break of dawn, they would come charging at us in just mass form, uh, yelling, screaming, firing, and they broke through. They, They really overran us and got killed a whole lot of guys in their individual foxholes. And broke through our lines, got behind the lines, and killed a number of our medical people and our rear echelon supply people. But eventually, we got we got them all, and uh, then we began moving forward. Oh man! When you're out there for five days, is it? Are you sleeping at all? Is it just continuous? 
Yeah, uh, at night, they, did, they didn't do much fighting okay. at night. I guess you didn't have night vision at those times. They're not no. going to move too much. So. Right, and no yeah. lights, you know. Yeah, that's In good. fact, you weren't even allowed to uh, smoke a cigarette or right. f- flick a cigarette lighter or anything like that after dark. Nothing. And we would uh, dig foxholes. Couldn't dig them very deep because uh, Guam is coral rock. Lots of coral rock. And uh, that's why they couldn't dig caves. Ah, okay. On Guam. Okay. I mean, dig a cave in coral rock is impossible. <laughs> you know? So we would dig foxholes as deep as we could, and then we'd put two guys, two Marines in each foxhole. And you'd sleep an hour, and then the other guy would stand on watch, then reverse. Yeah. He'd sleep an hour, and you're doing that all night long. Every other night, every other hour, you would change. And, of course, we had code words. Uh, I remember they had uh, baseball teams as a code word. Mm-hmm. They called it a password. So if somebody says, what's the password? You better know what the password is or you get yourself shot. Yeah. Because if you don't give me the password, you're you're on the wrong side. Right. You know? But they had this, these baseball teams. I, I had never heard of a baseball team name, so I didn't know any of them. <laughs> so, like St. Louis, St. Louis something. Or, you know. <laughs> so I had to remember all those names. Every night we'd change it, too. You wouldn't use the same one every night. You'd have one tonight, tomorrow night, you got another one. That's pretty difficult for someone who's never heard of a baseball That's team exactly uh, name. Right. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But uh, you better know the password. Yeah. <laughs> so after Guam, the next largest campaign that you were involved with was the Battle of Iwo, Iwo Jima. Yes. And that was in February of 1945. Correct. Okay. How long did that last? Did that battle last? 36 days on Iwo Jima. 36 days. When we left Guam, got aboard ship. Of course, we never knew where we were going until we got aboard ship, and they told us where, where we were headed. And they brought out a, a board that they had drawn out the outline of what Iwo Jima looked like. Yeah. You know, the shape of it. Of course, they briefed us as to its size, uh, you know, two and a half miles wide, five miles long. And, and uh, But we had no intelligence of the island whatsoever. We didn't know they had uh, 22,000 Japanese on the island. We had no, we didn't have a way of knowing that. Uh, we didn't know that they had 16 or 18 or 19, whatever it is, depending on who's writing the story, I guess, uh, of miles of tunnel that they had tunneled out under the volcano. We didn't know any of that. Uh, we didn't know that the water was uh, undrinkable sulfur. Mm. That's why they call it Sulfur Island. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, couldn't drink it. Uh, you had to have you had to bring water in. That's a logistical nightmare in itself. That's right, but. Eventually, uh, of course, they had distilling units that they could take ocean water, run it through this distiller, and make it into uh, regular water. Yeah, it had it didn't have any taste to it. Sure, I mean, it just, it, but it was wet. <laughs> yeah, but none of that we knew, and uh, I can remember them telling us that uh, we'd probably be gone. I'd never get off ship, but we'd probably be gone. The campaign would last three to five days. Because not knowing how many were there, 
not knowing what they had in the way of numbers of pillboxes. And what are pillboxes? Pillboxes. We call them bunkers today. Okay. But there were pillboxes then. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Japanese general, according to the information that I've got from some source, that he had 200 of those pillboxes built on the island. Wow. That was going to be his central defense because uh, he had concrete uh, reinforced by iron bars. We didn't call it rebar back in those days. It was just iron bars. But he had put those iron bars in the concrete so that a bazooka or a piece of artillery wouldn't even affect it. Now, there were real thick concrete walls with this iron bars in it. And you've seen some pictures where there's just iron pipes running in all directions. Yeah. Because he put a lot of them in there. And they covered the top of it or put sand on top of the pillbox itself so that a piece of artillery or a mortar hitting on top of the pillbox, it never reached the pillbox. It just hit the sand. Okay. Yeah. Now, bombs from airplanes, uh, if they could skip a bomb into the front of it, it it would do damage. Okay. But they were built in such a way, uh, particularly around the first airfield, as kind of self-protecting. You couldn't get to one pillbox without one of the others being able to see you so they could have a crossfire. Each pillbox had an opening in it. They called an aperture that was about eight inches in height, clear across the face of the pillbox, and that's where they could stick their rifles and machine guns out and have a complete field of fire out here. And we who are attacking, trying to get to the pillbox, all we got as a target is that opening in the front, that eight-inch slit. That's a small target. Yeah. And uh, to try to hit that thing, you know, uh, was very difficult. So uh, the uh, first airfield, once we got a, we lost a tremendous number of Marines crossing that first airfield because there was no protection. Occasionally you'd find a shell crater that you could jump into. And, of course, we were told over and over and over to not bunch up. Stay separated, you know, so you can't a whole bunch of you get killed at one time. But self-preservation is stronger than anything else. So if you found a hole and you could get your body into it, then you went into it, period. So we lost a tremendous number of uh, Marines crossing that airfield because they were still dropping mortars and artillery as we were trying to get across. Once we got across, then we have to attack the, the pillbox. Right. And every time we jump up and run to try to advance, they just annihilated us. You know, yeah. we, we just lost Marine after Marine. And you're trying to you're trying to get tanks over there too, right? Yeah. And they can't go because the tank would belly out and the, tre- the treads are turning mm-hmm. in the sand. But they're bellied out, so they can't go anywhere. Right. Yeah. Eventually, we got off of the beach. And once we got off of the beach uh, to a, oh, 500 to 1,000 yards, we ran out of that real deep 
volcanic ash, they call it sand, but it's really ash from that volcano over the eons that had come out of that volcano. Yeah. You know. Okay. And covered everything. So it was real fine stuff. Right. It had no body to it. Yeah. You couldn't compact it at all. Yeah. So tanks would just belly out and spin and go nowhere. And uh, eventually we got out of that area more solid ground. Then the tanks became movable and maneuverable. Maneuverable, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for joining us on Creeks to Peaks, The Understory, the podcast that highlights West Virginians both near and far. If you enjoyed the podcast, want to hear other West Virginia success stories, or would like to donate to other Flag Spruce Initiative projects, please visit www.flagspruce.org. Also, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram. We'd love to hear any recommendations you have on other people that you might consider part of West Virginia's understory. Thanks, and have a good one.